Hey everyone, it's Megan, the Family Finance Mom, adding a new weekly segment to Finance Explained. Now, in addition to financial deep dives and expert interview episodes each season, I'll be posting Q&A replays once a week. I host these sessions live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. over on Instagram. If you'd like to have your questions answered, look for the question box in my Instagram stories ahead of each session or join live and ask in the comments. But to make it easier for you to listen to the replays on the go, in segments and at your convenience, you can now listen here. What makes these great are the questions that you guys submit. And I have to say the questions that I got last night were incredibly thoughtful and I'm very excited to get started with those. So with all that being said, let me go ahead and pull up the first question. Okay, this is kind of a two-parter. It says, I'm worried about how we get out of this economic cycle. We've stopped going out, businesses are laying off employees, laid off workers then spend less money, so businesses lay off more. How does it stop? This is a great question. It's very intuitive. It's very insightful. And I'm going to link up in my stories when I'm done here, a post that is about like how and why recessions happen. And it examines kind of the last five major recessions. It's something I put together before um, like the full impact of the pandemic hit because I was getting a lot of these questions. And it's something that people start asking anytime they feel like the uncertainty of the economic environment, which I think is kind of where we're at right now, right? And so people are always like, well, how do we get out of this cycle? And so what it does is it goes through kind of the last five major recessions prior to the pandemic. And it says, okay, what triggered them? And then how did we get out of it? And here's the thing is that economic cycles happen. It is a function of human behavior. It is sort of the fact that when we have money, we feel great about things and we tend to overdo it a little bit. And then when we overdo it a little bit and things start to contract, that's kind of what causes the recession. When we start to pull back, when those bills come due and no longer can you just spend freely. And so that, but the, kind of the trigger point of what causes people to lose confidence and pulls back, that can vary from recession to recession. And then how we get out of it, well, now we have government tools at our disposal and the government intervenes in order to kind of jumpstart the economy again and get things moving in the right direction. So for example, let's talk about the Great Recession of 2008, the housing crisis, for example. So what happened in that scenario? Well, people started using their homes as ATMs. Um, people who probably shouldn't have been approved for mortgages were, and so it elevated the value of the housing stock significantly. But then when the bills came due, right, when people who were given interest-only mortgages on um, non-verified proof of income couldn't make the payments on their mortgages, either as interest rates reset or as the mortgage shifted from an interest only to a normal mortgage payment. And then suddenly they can't sell their house for more than what their mortgage was. And so it created this cascading effect. And then that was exacerbated by some of the derivative bets that were being made on Wall Street. And so people couldn't take money out to fuel spending anymore. So that's kind of what initially created the drawdown. It was made worse by the fact that you had all these side bets on Wall Street that could put, were sending some of those firms into bankruptcy. And so what happened? The government stepped in. The government stepped in to both bail out banks so that the collapse didn't get worse, as well as to help people out of those bad mortgage situations and clean up their balance sheets. 
And so by putting kind of a firm underpinning under how bad it could get and helping both corporations and individuals clean up their balance sheets, that paves the way for the recovery going forward. Sometimes it's stimulus checks to get people out there spending again. That's sort of what you saw happen during the pandemic, right? You have additional unemployment benefits to keep things from getting so severe that it can't recover. Um, the kind of tool, the main tools that are at the government's disposal um, on the, if you want to call it the fiscal side of things, that is government spending side of things, that is sort of the, you know, government taking action to help corporations, to help individuals either through stimulus checks or cleaning up their balance sheets. That's their kind of position in it. And then you have the Fed who has tools at its disposal as well. And the key thing at the Fed's disposal to kind of get things jump started again is cutting interest rates, which helps stimulate demand and gets the economy back on, you know, back on track again. This is one of the reasons why it has been so important to the Fed to get inflation under control. Because if inflation is still running rampant, they're going to be more hesitant to cut interest rates to stimulate the economy. You have to remember that the Fed is the central bank. Their mission, the things that they are tasked by Congress, the Fed is empowered by Congress, okay? Their authority is granted to them by the legislative body of our government. And it's confined to two specific things. One is promoting a stable price environment and the other is promoting full employment. Notice nowhere in that is making sure that we don't go into a recession or making sure that the economy grows. Neither of those are missions of the Fed. And so right now the Fed is very focused on getting back to a stable price environment, lowering inflation. And so long as the labor market remains steady and yes, we've seen layoff announcements increase. Um, and however, even in that kind of context, we still are seeing kind of record low levels of unemployment, at least through the way that it has historically always been measured. And so as long as you continue to see that, and we still see inflation lingering kind of in the 3% area, and the most recent month's worth of data is showing that inflation isn't subsiding as quickly as people thought and is still kind of hovering about 50% higher than what the Fed would like to target, they're not gonna be likely to cut interest rates. The thing that could, and I've kind of talked about this before as well, you know, when we look at the projections of what people think will happen with interest rates, it's always this like logical rat, like ratable decrease and ratable increase. The reality is, if you look at history, that's not usually what happens. What usually happens is the Fed has to take some type of emergency action in response to the environment around them. So something happens, we get triggered into a recession, and then the Fed takes emergency action and cuts rates rather rapidly or kind of even overnight in order to get things back on track. That is why they have wanted to get inflation under control so that it doesn't take that um, firepower out of their arsenal in the event we get into um, a more difficult economic situation. I think it's important to acknowledge that if you look at the broader world around us, kind of outside the US, there have been several major economies that have entered into a recession, including Japan, including China, and I think Europe as well. I don't remember exactly off the top of my head. I know Europe has kind of been in like a middle ground. And I want to say the latest data showed that they had entered in a decline, at least in maybe certain of the countries. Um, 
we do still live and operate in a global economy. And so the United States is not gonna be immune from the impacts of the downturns in those other countries. So I think that's another kind of thing that is important to keep in mind. All of that being said, like our government has tools at its disposal to alleviate recessions and downturns from being as bad as they were say during the Great Depression. Many of those tools evolved out of that time period. However, you should know that it doesn't prevent recessions from happening at all. Economic cycles are a natural part of the economy and the world that we live in. The good news is that they last, they're typically much shorter in duration than the upside part of the economic cycle. On average, over the last, call it 100 plus years, the recessions on average last less than a year. They last about 11 months. And so the key, I think, from a personal finance perspective is understanding what the risks to you are in an economic downturn. The biggest risk to the average family in a recession is job loss, loss of income. So what can you do to kind of guard yourself against that impact? Well, have an emergency fund. Be prepared in the event that you lose your job. Um, Know that in an economic downturn, it can take longer to find a new job. Know that even if you file for unemployment benefits, they typically, A, only last for a certain period of time. In most economic environments, kind of the norm is six months. Sometimes the federal government will step in and extend them for a longer period of time when we're in kind of a more severe economic downturn. We saw that happen back in 2008. We saw that happen again back in 2020. But even if that happens, Typically, those benefits are not going to be the equivalent of whatever salary that you were making. And they're also potentially going to take some time to get that paperwork processed and actually start receiving them. So all of these are reasons for why you need an emergency fund. The idea with your personal finances is to equip yourself to ride out whatever period of downturn there is so that you come out okay on the other side so that you aren't in a situation where you're so distressed that you're having to sell your home or you know sell your car or forced into making economic decisions that aren't in your best interest. Things like taking out a loan from your 401k and cashing out of investment assets, typically at what are likely the worst time, right? Because if we enter into a recession, oftentimes that's like in a down market that's the worst time to be selling out of investments. But if you need the cash just to like live and exist and, um, you know, stay out of financial ruin, um, sometimes that's what I mean by forced into kind of unfavorable economic decisions. An emergency fund and having that cash set aside, as well as, for example, before you get into the position where you're forced to make these decisions, Understand what your budget looks like. Understand what cuts you could make if you had to in order to get to kind of that bare bones budget state to preserve whatever cash you have to ride out the period of time where you might have less income or you might not have a job and things like that. That I think is the way to think and understand recessions, but also understand that our government and the Fed have tools at its disposal that they have fine-tuned and honed over the last, call it, 100 years um, through prior downturns that, one, help recessions, like, help the economy jumpstart its way out of a recession, two, have reduced the duration of recessions, and three, have made them less severe. 
Um, I think the thing to remember, however, is that the fundamental element of human behavior and human psychology is what gets us into these kind of um, like we get overexcited and overshoot on the upside. And then that is why downturns happen. Um, we get overlevered. We take out too much debt. And this is true of consumers and businesses alike. Um, and that is just the fundamental, like you can't fundamentally change human nature to eliminate these up cycles and downturns um, altogether. It's just part of who we are as human beings and the way that we behave and respond to you know, the world around us as an example. Um, so hopefully that answers your question and gives you some sense. There is a very real danger, right? And historically that's kind of part of what happened in the Great Depression was we had a government that didn't have some of these tools at its disposal. We had a president who didn't believe in government intervention. And in the last hundred years since that time period, we basically had expert economists demonstrate the value of government intervention, of fiscal stimulus, of monetary policy to aid and assist in the economic recovery during downturns. So I, like I said at the outset, I will link up that post just so you can see how it works and was put in place in real time. That's not to say that those tools are always used absolutely appropriately. And the benefit of hindsight is always 2020. You can kind of see how it plays out. You can also see the different things that happen that trigger downturns to begin with. Um, so I'll link that up in my stories uh, after I hop off here today. But excellent question, very um, thoughtful. Okay, next question. Discover Capital One merger. Will this be stuff like the JetBlue Spirit deal? So another great question and is something that we're seeing kind of happen more and more. Um, we're seeing, okay, let me talk about two things first and then I'll get into like the specifics of that deal. In general, we are starting to see more corporate merger and acquisition activity right now. Part of that is the economic environment that we're in. Part of that is the because of higher interest rates that um, as companies, there are gonna be companies that are sitting on a lot of cash um, and so what are they going to do with that cash? How are they going to deploy that cash? They need to deploy it in a way that is going to generate a return greater than just sitting on cash, right? Um, and so that is, and at the same time, there are companies that if they aren't sitting on a lot of cash, if they instead have a significant amount of like debt potentially on their balance sheet, um, higher interest rates are going to make them less competitive. And one of their outlets for that could be being acquired by somebody who is healthier financially. The other thing is that you're seeing, um, you know, these smaller competitors, and I say smaller in relative terms. So if you look at somebody like a Capital One and a Discover, they're competing in a market versus people like Visa and MasterCard and Amex. And so I would characterize them as kind of like the tier two players in those markets. And so they're looking to compete against these larger, potentially more um, financially stronger companies. And so by merging, they can reduce costs and potentially compete more effectively. And so you're seeing that happen in various industries right now where you're going to likely hear more um, merger activity announced. At the same time, we are currently in a political administration 
who anti-business may be too strong of a word, but they're definitely a more, um, more pro-regulation than say their predecessor had been. And one of those things, you have some very loud, outspoken Democratic senators, especially, who are very, and it's not that they shouldn't protect consumers and shouldn't be pro-consumer, but I think you also have to be careful of government overreach. And so one of the things about this Capital One Discover merger that makes it different than some of these other um, Department of Justice cases we've seen come that are like antitrust related is that, like I mentioned earlier, these are sort of some of the tier two players in um, the world of credit cards. So you have two, and, and there's two kind of business lines here. There's credit cards that are issued, issued to consumers that the consumers go out and charge and they're earning interest on those charges. Discover also owns a payments network. So like Visa and MasterCard also own payments networks. That means that the point of sale that is at like the terminal that you're swiping your card at, they own kind of the wires that get, that process the information and as such collect a payment processing fee. Um, Discover does too. And that's why a lot of times you will like Discover sometimes is not accepted as broadly as other places um, because of that kind of competitive nature of the market. They own their own transaction network. And so, you know, if, if something's on Visa, they might say, oh, we don't process Discover transactions. Um, so I don't know if any of you have ever encountered that. As an aside, back when I was um, a baby analyst, first out of college at Morgan Stanley, Morgan Stanley actually owned Discover. And Discover was, because of that, we all had Discover cards for um, like business expenses. When you were the baby analyst, you were always in charge of like paying the bills and submitting expenses for like client dinners or road shows and things like that. So, but what would happen is that Discover wasn't taken everywhere. And so then they also gave all of us American Expresses, but you were always supposed to use your Discover card if you could, and if you couldn't, then you would use Amex. Um, so anyway, just as an aside, eventually they sold Discover um, and now it's like its own standalone company. And that's the company that's kind of involved in this discussion of a merger with Capital One. If you look at kind of the market data, it depends on sort of which segment of the market that you're looking at, but Discover is definitely like the fourth in terms of transaction processing market share relative to like the Visa, um, MasterCard and Amexes of the world. And then if you look in terms of kind of like capital, the combined Capital One Discover, I think is something like six out of the top 10 um, people in that segment of the market. So, you're not talking about somebody merging to become number one. You already have some very large players in that market. And this merger is making a play like kind of two like less than competitors bigger to be more competitive in a market that already has kind of some big behemoths in it. And the argument against like why it should be allowed to go through is that by making it larger, it potentially makes Discover a stronger, more competitive transaction processor that in competition with the others could make transaction fees lower for consumers and you know, small businesses. And so then that, you know, that potentially makes this merger in 
the good interests of consumers is sort of the alternative argument to you're making these credit card behemoths that are going to um, prey on consumers. Um, so that's kind of like the debate that goes on when you're talking about mergers and whether it is in favor of consumers or not, whether the Department of Justice is going to allow it to go through or not. Um, I'm not well versed enough in kind of the like I haven't looked at it in great detail to look at like what the market share numbers are and what they'll look like before and after. That's what would take place in a um, regulatory approval. So any merger like this has to go through regulatory approval. What they're looking at is there's actually something known as the HHI. It's the I'm not going to remember what it stands for exactly. It's like the Herschel something index. And it's basically going to look at kind of market share in the market before and after the transaction. And there's a literal mathematical calculation that says whether or not it would be in the best interest of consumers for this transaction to proceed. The part that is, and so that's pretty black and white. The part that is kind of shades of gray is an how you define the market when you're calculating those market shares. And so that's kind of what regulators look at when they're approving a transaction or not. So I do think that this one is a little bit different than like the JetBlue Spirit transaction, for example. Um, so we'll see kind of how it plays out, but that's kind of how regulators think about it. Um, that's sort of where politicians come in as to whether they think it's a good idea or not. Um, and why actually in this case, a merger might be in the best interest of consumers because there's already two much bigger players that kind of keep transaction processing fees high. So anyway, we'll kind of see how all that plays out, but that's sort of um, kind of the information behind it and kind of how those processes play out. And we'll kind of monitor what goes on. It could, I mean, literally, it could take the better part of the next six to 12 months for the transaction to get approved and go through. Um, you know, and anytime there's like a deal announcement like this, it always carries with it kind of that uh, language that says contingent on regulatory approvals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we'll see, you know, we can monitor that in the news over the coming months and kind of see how it plays out. Okay. Last question that was submitted. And then if there's time, we'll see if anybody has any more. And I always am kind of hesitant to take these, but it's a good question in the current environment. It says, is the economy likely to increase under a Biden second term? Lots of factors involved, but what is your take? So if we go back to four years ago, I actually put out a post that was like the top 10 things that politicians don't want to tell you about the economy. It is very, very challenging to ascribe the economic environment, the current economic environment to whoever is currently in power, despite the fact that if things are good, they always wanna take credit for it. And if things are not so good, they're really adept at blaming the guy before them, right? That's kind of what goes on in politics. Here's what you have to know is that economic cycles are far long, and when I say cycles, I mean the full like up, down, recession and recovery. Like that's the five stages of an economic cycle. Those take years to play out. Oftentimes far more years than a single term in the presidency and definitely longer than a two year term in Congress. So we have politicians, and this is true kind of no matter your political party. 
we have politicians who are motivated to get elected in these two to four year or six year in the case of senators cycles that don't necessarily align with what's going on in the broader economy. We also have, and so what I, what frustrates me as a voter is that we have politicians who are incentivized to make decisions for short-term economic gain, regardless of the potential long-term economic consequences. And so oftentimes whoever is in power is experiencing the impact of policies that may have had significant short-term economic gain, which, and I would associate kind of really large stimulus checks as part of that, that's going to give you a huge short-term um, economic plus, but then we're going to be paying for that for the next five to 10 years. Um, and so the guy who's president a decade from now is potentially going to be faced with trillions of dollars of debt at now trillions of dollars of interest expense because interest rates are fundamentally higher. Is that his fault? Because the guy 10 years ago issued trillions of dollars in stimulus checks. So that's why I'm always very hesitant to, I mean, yes, the president is the face of the nation and, you know, carries significant, I think, carries more weight in terms of the overall psychology of the American people. Like, do we feel good about him or do we not feel good about him? That is gonna have kind of an economic impact. Certain policies can have, I think more often, certain policies can have um, a lot of short-term benefit, but I think the thing that we all lose sight of is like, are these policies good for the country over the next five, 10, 20 years for our children, for their grandchildren? Um, and that I think is something you have to consider more. Um, so anyway, all of that being said is that four years ago, I put together a post that kind of looks at like, you know, if you want to look at like who the stock market does better under, who GDP does better under, who labor does better under, generally speaking, there are much longer term trends underlying all of those things than the person in power at any given moment. However, they're very quick to take credit again if things are good and blame the people before if things are bad. So I tend to, I hesitate to like kind of because people get all angry and upset if I say something that they disagree with. What I will tell you is that historically, Republicans tend to be more fiscally conservative than Democrats. Um, Republicans tend to be more, uh, I'm trying to think what the right word is, um, pro, not pro-business and anti-business is too strong of a word. Um, Republicans tend to be more hands-off in terms of letting the free market kind of do its thing, whereas Democrats tend to have increased regulation and want to have greater oversight in order to, under the guise of protecting consumers, um, and so that comes with a cost associated with it. And so, you know, everybody has different feelings about which is the right way to govern. Um, I think generally speaking, with some exceptions, because obviously we've seen even in recent years, there have been corrupt politicians. There are going to be corrupt politicians kind of on both sides of the aisle, no matter what. People that let power go to their head. Um, people that become susceptible to 
um, things that come with being in a position of power. Uh, people who make bad choices and are bad actors. I think those tend to be kind of the exceptions, not the rule. At least I like to be glass half full and think that way. I think generally speaking, most elected officials fundamentally want to do what's right for the American people and make the economy a better place, make the country a better place for the people that live here. And they just fundamentally have different points of view as to what the right way to go about that is. And so you and us as voters are going to fundamentally have different points of view as what the right way to go about that is. Um, I generally tend to vote based on my fiscal perspective because that's my area of expertise, right? That's what I understand. I understand how the economy works. I understand how um, the impact of the national debt. I understand all of that much better and frankly believe the government has far more impact over those things than some of the other peripheral like social issues. Um, so that's kind of how I tend to think about things. But like I said, I will link up that post when I'm done that kind of to demonstrate for you that like who is in power as president at any given moment in time doesn't necessarily give them credit for the economy, good or bad, um, because it's more, what I would tell you matters more is their policy perceptions and their leadership in order to get those policy things put in place um, and what the long-term impact of those policies are. Because by the way, anybody can say, oh, I'm gonna issue $2 trillion in stimulus checks and that's gonna give the economy a great bump um, that's going to improve the labor market for a short period of time, but what about five or 10 years from now? And so that's what I think you have to be careful of, is understanding the not only the preliminary impacts of various policies, but what are the secondary and tertiary impacts of that? And we have just lived through a period of time where we've experienced the very real impact of those secondary and tertiary impacts. Um, so I would just say, like, do your homework, um, read through what their proposals and policies actually are. Um, look at what the CBO comes out. The CBO is the Congressional Budget Office where they have that, like, as this um, election cycle plays out, once we have the two actual final candidates, once all the primary processes are done, oftentimes they'll come out with like a platform with very specific proposals the Congressional Budget Office oftentimes will kind of do an evaluation of those and say like, this will be the impact to the federal budget over the next 10 years of these policies. But the other thing you have to know, right, is that just because somebody stands up and says something, their ability to actually get it implemented and passed is very limited, um, just because of the divided nature of Congress right now. And regardless of who gets elected, that divided nature of Congress is likely to persist just given the demographics of the country. So I know that doesn't give you a direct answer, but that's kind of how I think about it, how I read through and evaluate things. Um, I'm personally less concerned about what somebody says they can do for the next four years and more concerned about what is their overarching policy perspective? And what does that mean for the long-term? What does that mean for my children? What does that mean for my children's children? Um, anyway, so that's kind of how I think about it. I know that may not give you the answer that you wanted, but I think that's the better way to think about it. Because like I said, 
anybody can issue us a few trillion dollars in stimulus checks and jumpstart the economy for a hot minute. Um, but always remember that we're going to have to pay for that down the road. So anyway, great, great questions today. I have a few things that I owe you out of today. I will link up that post about kind of the history of recessions and you know what triggered them, the steps that were taken to help jumpstart things and recover from them. Just a reminder, we've always recovered, okay? We've always recovered and surpassed the prior height and moved on to greater and bigger things. Um, it's just positioning yourself in a way that allows you to write it out. So I'll link up that post when I'm done here. I will link up my post for four years ago, since we're essentially seeing the same matchup again, that the idea is that it demonstrates like, here's the various economic data and how it's varied across different administrations. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that oftentimes you're inheriting an economy um, and you're getting the benefits and the detriments of the policies that have come before you and you're doing your best to navigate through it. Um, and so I don't think you can ever ascribe the current environment specifically to whoever is in charge. Um, but I'll link that up if you wanna take a read through it. And then I think, well, what else is there? I don't know. Okay, couple things to look for this week. One, I'll be sharing later in my stories today, uh, kind of, it should be close to the tail end of Q4 earnings season. There is a very major earnings announcement coming today from NVIDIA. NVIDIA has been one of the top highest performing stocks of the last year or so. We're actually, before I hopped on here, it was down like 4% in pre-market trading ahead of their earnings release, which is coming after the market closed today. The thing to remember is that the higher expectations are for a company, the harder they fall when they don't meet them. That's not to say that they're not going to meet kind of what they said they're going to do, but the market around them has put a significant amount of pressure on them as kind of the poster child for AI. And as, you know, they're going to be this net winner from all this increased artificial intelligence because they have the chips to fuel the computing power needed to create it. And so that's kind of been the story behind NVIDIA. And we'll kind of see where that plays out. The other thing to know just about the market dynamics around it is when stocks get really high and re some people would say ahead of themselves, it creates a lot of short interest. Short interest is companies shorting stocks, betting that they're going to fall. So ahead of an earnings announcement like this, if there's a significant short interest and people think that they're going to beat earnings, they're going to look to potentially cover those shorts. Um, which can make the stock go up and down and have various volatility around it too. So we'll see what happens when the earnings announcement actually comes out this afternoon. Um, but just know that's something going on today. Uh, and I'll share kind of a summary of where we're at through earnings season so far. Big picture, generally speaking, Q4 and 2023 earnings were relatively weak. Um, for Q4, we're looking at earnings that were up about 3% kind of market-wide. Uh, that's a relatively low level of earnings growth relative to history. Through the Q4 earnings season, things have gotten better, meaning that initially when we first had like financial companies reporting, it looked like earnings were going to be down for the quarter. We've ended up after, oh, I think now like 80% or something of companies have reported, earnings have been about up 3% in the grand scheme of things. That's not significantly different, right? To be flat to slightly down versus up 3%, especially not relative to history. 
Um, and the bigger thing, because the market trades on expectations, is that two thirds of companies giving guidance continue to give negative guidance, meaning their outlook for the coming year is worse than what it was before or worse than what the market had been pricing in. And so what we've seen happen is while Q4 is coming out maybe a little bit better than people expected, um, the outlook for 2024 is getting worse than people expected. And so that's kind of a dichotomy that's playing on the market of potentially worse earning expectations, as well as when interest rate cuts getting pushed further out, those things are both putting somewhat downward pressure on the market and has created some of the volatility in the market you've seen over, call it, the last month or so. Um, so anyway, those are things to look for that'll be in my stories this week. And I think that's it. Over the 30 minute mark, I'm gonna go ahead and cut it off here. Excellent questions again today. Question, your questions are what make these sessions productive. So keep them coming. Um, one thing I will say is that in an election year, there's a lot of headlines. I try to kind of like weed through the noise by focusing on data. Um, that's just kind of my personality and who I am. And it's much harder to make like a 50 or 75 year economic data series lie um, than it is to manipulate various statistics that are used in political headlines. So I tend to wade through the noise by focusing on data points that I can kind of source and determine to be accurate. And so I hope to serve as that resource for you guys through this election cycle and always through this election cycle and even economic cycles too. Um, because data is kind of what tells us how we're doing and what we're, you know, what gets measured gets done. Um, and data doesn't lie, I guess, for lack of a better term. It can be manipulated potentially, but over a long period of time, it tells a story that I think is much harder to manipulate. So that's what I will focus on here um, to hopefully keep you informed as we go through this next year that is likely to be volatile. Um, know that an election cycle, in and of itself creates uncertainty for the economic environment. So you may have companies holding off on making investment decisions, waiting to see like who's gonna be in power next, what the political environment will be like, what policies will be like. It, can, it kind of tends to kind of put a pause on things while people take a wait and see approach for either direction because they don't know, right? Um, and so that's kind of sometimes what you see happen in an election year too. So we'll see how it all plays out. But I hope you guys have a great rest of the week. Um, I will be more active the rest of this week. My kids had winter break the last two days, so that's why it was a little quiet. Um, and I will see y'all next Wednesday for live Q&A again. Thanks for listening to today's Q&A replay. As a reminder, to get your questions answered, be sure to follow me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom and look for the question box in my stories ahead of each live session or join live Q&A at 9 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday. Any resources mentioned in today's replay can also be found in today's show notes.